one way of mitigating against the alienating effect of being in a brown body was to make sure that I wasn't also in a fat body. I cannot go further into otherness than I already am. I've maxed out the scale. I'm black and female. I cannot also be fat. Hello, I'm Eden, and this is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are also interested. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend Kianga. This conversation was originally recorded January 19, 2023. It was truly a pleasure to talk to Kianga. She was incredibly present and open, and I had a great sense of give and take in this conversation as we talked about different beliefs we have as well as similar experiences. Kianga talks about the complicated relationship she has with both viewing and experiencing her body, her experiences of racism and sexism, inside and outside America, as well as her perspective on pleasure. I will note that in the last 30 minutes, there are a couple of background sounds that some find uncomfortable. I know I do. One is a high-pitched playground noise, and the other is a dog barking. I unfortunately was not able to remove these noises. Content warning for talk about fat phobia, colorism, racism, misogyny, transphobia, and BDSM. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly. They are people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting, communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here's my interview with Kianga. All right. Here we are. Um, so the first question that I always ask people is how do we know each other? Mm-hmm. <laughs> From witness protection. No. <laughs> <laughs> From a writer's retreat that we did in the Pacific Northwest. Mm. Yeah. Which is now more than a year ago that we did that. Yeah, it was in that fake moment where COVID was almost over, but not really. <laughs> yeah, but we we purposely met outside quite a lot because whenever we were inside, we wore masks. So none of us wanted to do that and it didn't really fit with the the vibe of the retreat, which was very sort of emotionally based and... Um, very much about connection with others and with ourselves. And so we met outside a lot. And because it's the Pacific Northwest, that was somewhat acceptable to do in October. Was that October? It was. It was October. Wow. I I mentally cataloged that as the end of September because 
so many things changed in my life after that October. Mm -hmm. So like during and after that October, everything was different. So I guess that was the beginning of, mm. of the big change. But yeah, it was after, after the Delta surge where we'd all sort of come out in the summer and we're like, mm. it's okay. We're out. <laughs> and then mm. not quite so much. Yeah, we learned that this is more of a this is more of a chronic thing as opposed to an acute experience. Mm -hmm. mm. But yeah, I remember meeting you and thinking I think I remember the, like the, the first time that I like was thinking like how, how I experienced you. I was like, this is very strange. This woman's very strange and is outside of my <laughs> norm. And, you know, cause I, you know, I was coming in. Yeah. I think <laughs> how would I describe where I was coming in at? I was starting to be more open to things that were, different from my experience because if I had gone to that retreat the year before which is what was originally planned I would not have been prepared I would have um heard some of those things and I would have been like bye like I <laughs> I'm walking out the door um so I think I remember that was the first thing I I thought because you were talking about it was a stone or like a crystal that you put inside of your body. And I was so confused by this. Right. It was, I remember wanting to talk about it because we were all asked to bring like a single object that felt really close to us or close to our process mm -hmm. or precious in some ways. And, you know, people brought objects from their families and heirlooms and all kinds of like, different objects that they relate with. And I brought this uh, rhodochromocyte mm. yoni egg, right, which you actually use inside of the vaginal canal as a way to, you know, people use them for all kinds of things. People use them for pleasure. People use them mm. to strengthen the pelvic floor. People use them for the crystal properties. That particular crystal is about the intersection mm. of the masculine and feminine. So the stones like are variations of pink and black. Mm. Right? And so kind of the ways that, that those two energies mm. meld, which is a lot of the work that I do. So. Yeah, I think that I didn't realize, I, I don't remember if you mentioned it or not, but the idea of the feminine and masculine melding, which is so much of what was and what continues to be going on with me is this idea of what does it mean to be born in a female body and identify as a man and what parts of my femininity are important to me and and I shouldn't deny that they exist and and give me life while also going in a more masculine direction or accepting parts of my masculinity that have been quashed. Um, so I, 
I find that really fascinating now looking back. <laughs> After the initial. Oh, yeah, I remember being like, okay, Eden, you can do it. You can deal with crystal people. <laughs> um, but then I remember later we happened to be in uh, the same like really small group and we were sharing writings and I don't remember exactly what you shared, but I remember it was powerful mm-hmm. and that you had this power and yet also, I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but uh, maybe a quiet or a calm strength. Like it, um, your power wasn't violent. Um, yeah, there, there was a, a certain softness to it that I don't think I realized could be, could be in the same space of having that strength and having that softness. Um, so when I was thinking about working on this project, you were one of the people that came to mind because of the way that you interacted with body and the way you talked about body and about pleasure and, and yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful and, um, I think a little nervous, a little bit in awe, I think, <laughs> um, to have you here. So I, I appreciate you joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It turns out that, you know, not only were you game to have that conversation, but you'd like mm. to have it for a few years. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. So that's nice. I appreciate those moments where in the initial moment of meeting someone, you're like, oh, that's not for me. Or, and then it evolves Mm. to, oh, that's exactly for me. Right. And you don't know what form that relationship is going to take. It doesn't have to be like, oh, this is my new bestie or like my new love interest. But there is something that says, Mm. keep turning into the Mm -hmm. conversation. Yeah. I think this is something I, I keep recognizing is that my first response, like I I can't control my first response to things, but I can control what I end up doing with that first response, which is, which is good because, you know, sometimes I will feel shame or insecurity and then I feel shame about having shame or insecurity and realize, no, that's just going to be there or that that um, restrictive response is just going to be there and I have to give space for it to dissipate over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. Are you open to going more deeply into what that initial squeamishness was about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will say that I still have some squeamishness. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I will say, I think my initial response was, and what I still think in some ways is crystals don't fucking do anything. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) why would you put 
that up there and isn't this a Gwyneth Paltrow crazy thing and um I guess especially as someone who has I I have sexual pain and I have pelvic floor problems and when I hear about that I'm like that sounds bad for you and that sounds like a bunch of crazy talk so that's my very honest you know response to that and just like this is woo-woo in a way that is way beyond what I accept as woo-woo. Like, I'm, I know that I, I am a bit of a mystic and into some woo-woo-ness, but I have, I have, um, I have, I have boundaries on that. Woo-woo boundaries, yes. Woo boundaries. Yeah. I get that. I get all those things. What shifted for you? You know, I, I think to some extent, I still think or feel or believe many of those things. But what has shifted for me is that I can be open to other ways of experiencing the world. And that there are things that I, I already know. Like, I already know being being a Christian <laughs> And believing in things that other people don't see or experience or, or or can prove that there's a lot of things that I don't understand and that we can't necessarily prove. Like, I've never been that sort of person. I've been taught that you need to be that person. You need to be a thinker and you need to to focus on what's reasonable but that's not actually who I am. I'm a very experiential person. And so I can be open to the fact that these things can be helpful for a person and that, and I may not know why they're helpful or why, you know, why for any of these things, but who knows what the possibilities are. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think also over the retreat, you did talk about the idea of pleasure and the idea of masculinity. And I think those things were thing were stuff that I could connect with and recognize, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what it would be like to think that way or to experience the world in that way. It is so different from my... Um, my often very negative and pain-focused, suffering-focused life. It's quite a a striking phrase, a suffering-focused life. Mm. I have a lot of questions about that. Well, I'm sure we can get into that later. I think I had a I had another question, but I, I'll I'll ask that later as well. Uh, I'll move on to my second question, which is, how would you introduce yourself? Um, what are the things that you would want people to know about you, or that you think are important about yourself? It's funny because you you told me that this would be a question, and it's mm-hmm. one that I didn't give much thought. I only gave you the simple, um, the simple question. Yeah, I mean, but but still, 
I mm. introduce myself a lot as, um, hmm. I've done a lot of different things professionally, but all of those have been involved. All of those have involved being a purveyor of ideas mm. in some way. And when you want to bring ideas into the world to an audience, to a marketplace, one of the questions that's always up is mm. who are you to bring those? Right. So I've been writing artist bios and scholar bios and now coach and facilitator bios, right? Like founder bios. Mm. I just wrote one about to launch a new uh, course and there's a long about mm. me section, right? Because everyone is always trying to figure out what's the position or mm. perspective of the speaker, right? Where did this idea come from? Can I trust it? So I feel like I'm often in the commerce of Mm-hmm. self-naming like that kind of proclaiming and, and what matters and and what's the relationship between the photo that you see of me and the text that you read about me what's the relationship of the woman that you see on the stage mm-hmm. to the words that you hear right how does my body since this is also about body also contextualize that speaking perspective mm-hmm. for people I think, well, maybe that's the statement, right? I, I think, I think a lot about all of these things, all of the, the kind of meta dynamics of self positioning and experience. And so that's probably the most important thing to know about me is I'm the one who's always mm. thinking about the thing behind the thing. Right. And then I can tell you other things like, oh, I don't know. I spent 20 years in academia as a university professor, or I have been a practicing fine artist, or I'm a certified orgasmic meditation trainer, or right. Like I can kind of shuffle the deck mm-hmm. and none of them are the answer. Mm. Right. I'm a Gen Xer, which <laughs> suddenly has, not, not suddenly, but in this moment mm-hmm. of being a generation sandwiched between the kind of two brighter focal points right, of the boomers and the millennials is suddenly a very particular location. Mm-hmm. I can talk about being a U.S. born black woman of a certain age, Mm. right? And that's another position. They're just all points in the constellation. All of them are relevant and none of them answer the question singularly. Yeah, it's what I love about this question. I, I originally didn't have it in the first interviews that I, two first interviews that I did, which um, will never, uh, I don't believe will ever be released. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a particular question. I just said, body, let's go. And 
And I don't remember what it was that told me you should ask this question, but I've gotten really different answers from people. And oftentimes people have said, oh, that's an interesting wording of that question. And Mm -hmm. um, that's why I actually don't specify, I don't use the wording when I tell people um, the questions to expect because I want them to think about it and wonder about it and to, to not have a pre-created introduction or, you know, sort of what is it elevator speech or, you know, whatever about themselves. Yeah. I'm in an industry that practices the elevator pitch constantly. And I've been in a number of industries like that. Mm. Have it ready, have it ready to go. Like, what do you do? Who do you serve? What do you make? What's your idea? Depending on if that's an artist conversation, coaching conversation, entrepreneurial conversation. And I always resist doing that because every time I'm asked, it's an opportunity for me to ask myself, mm. where am I coming from? What about these various constellation points of identity feels, feels like it matters today? in this moment, in this conversation, in front of this person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of what you were saying earlier about what you see on on the page, what you see in a picture, as opposed to, you know, your actual self or your actual body being in the presence of somebody. I've often been obsessive or, you know, thinking very strategically about conversations, um, and and I find when I actually meet the person and actually interact with them, everything changes, mm-hmm. right? Who I am is different. Who I am with this person in this moment is different from who I am with a different person or with the same person at a different time. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I'll, I'll get to our, our main, my main question, which is how do you, would you talk about how you relate to your body and how the different experiences you've had have affected that relationship? I mean, that's another question that's very moment by moment. Mm-hmm. You catch me today about to launch a new program and thus a new web page and related to that kind of behind the scenes of that is having just gone through hundreds of images of myself from a recent retreat that I led Hmm. and I have a complex history with seeing my body Hmm. captured in photographs or in video And even though my body has changed tremendously over the years, I've had moments where I've been heavier and thinner and the existential relationship, the kind of angst in the relationship to images of myself Mm. has never gotten easy, Mm. not in any of those moments. And so if you asked me this on a different day, I might have a totally different answer, 
because I find that my embodied experience of my body is very different than my relationship to its representations. Mm. Right. So I don't like, I, I have a relationship to my body in the day to day that is very tactile. That's very sensual. That is very connected to the feeling of being embodied. Right. Mm. It's about the light and the wind and the textures of the materials around me and flavor and contact with other people. Mm. And in that, that respect, I have a very marvelous and delightful relationship with my body. It's very unangstful. <laughs> and so sometimes I have a hard time reconciling what I see mm. in the images and also understanding that as a result of my choices and the way I feel in my body moment to moment. Mm. You know? And underneath that are endless complexities around conditioning, around mm, sort of all of the elements of identity from race to age to gender, right? Like what is this body supposed to look like mm. in relationship to other people's expectations, in relationships to societal norms, in relationships to, in relationship to measures of attractiveness, right? How, how is this going to body, how is this body going to get me or isolate me from the connection that I want, mm. from the feelings that I want to experience, from the way that I want to connect with other humans? How is my sense of that body going to bring me closer to or alienate me further from my own experience? Mm. Right. So, are a lot of questions. And one thing I notice is, one thing that seems really clear is, you know, the, the 3D version of this, the very material version of this is, I've gained a lot of weight since the last time I was photographed. That was mm -hmm. my first major trip since COVID started. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I guess that's a little hard to describe. Um, um, I've traveled a lot since COVID, but as like a destination, I'm going to an event with a group. Um, Mm. that's really one of the first major, and I'm going to be leading and photographed, mm. right? Like I haven't been in that space for a long time. And I realized, oh, COVID reduced even my experience of myself mm. to this little postage stamp headshot. Mm. So while I see my head all the time, while I'm teaching and coaching and even relating to friends online, I don't have a regular reflective relationship with my body hmm. right right now where I see it, where I see it imaged, where I see it even in a full length mirror mm -hmm. right with, with any amount of distance. Hmm. It's also relative, you know, and then I realize I know my body mostly in context and when the context changes, so does my understanding of my body, mm. right? So 
in this one house, in this half-length mirror, I can perceive changes. But in the next mirror, that's like a rounded third body, you know, like a third of a body mirror, I only understand the changes within that the frame of that particular mirror, mm. right? Not, I don't understand the change objectively, right? There's no continuity. And I think that there's something about that that's really fascinating. You know, mm. I'm a lifelong dancer. I feel my body in the studio when I try to do certain movements mm. in a really particular way. And I can tell like, oh, okay, I don't have the same level of um, agility or access or mm. like length that I want. Um that I'm accustomed to having. I can feel it on my yoga mat in a different way. Mm. But the contexts are so, they're so unique. They're so particular. The kind of dance I love is partner dance, which I stopped doing at the beginning of COVID. Mm. Right. So the way even that I feel in relationship to someone else's body, the way a lead might hold my frame will tell me things. It'll give me information about what's happening with my body. Mm. And I haven't been getting that kind of information mm. for a long time. Mm. So I'm like, Oh, that, that body has just been ahead for a while. Mm. And not that I've stopped moving or living or doing things, but certainly you know, for a couple of years, my movements were much more constrained, much more limited, right? My life was much more sedentary. And so, you know, in the face of this, I'm, I'm making some really practical changes. I'm really paying attention to my steps and doing, changing some things around diet and getting right with the hormonal changes that are a part of this time in my life as well. But one of the one of the other things that feels really important is to see the relational shift mm. you know not just the kind of practical things but like oh how has my body actually been relating to the world in this period of isolation because mm. i didn't stop exercising i didn't stop you know it's um it's just different mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a long first answer. Mm, it's it's great. I there's so much in there that was making me think, and I, I think the first things um, in my mind, I think because of the way I grew up, was oh, um, so so is seeing your body in images is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Right. Um, is this a useful thing or is this a, uh, a harmful thing or, or whatever? And what you're actually talking about is a very complex and recognizing a lot of nuance with this. And, you know, I, I studied mental health. I, I have a master's in social work and I, I worked in mental health for a bit. And I'm hoping to return to that and then have been in pretty intense therapy for the last few years. And so when I hear the idea of uh, having this time where you are not interacting with reflections or full reflection and unreflected self really intrigues me. 
and yeah like what's the balance of well you know you've you've just sort of been engaging with your body on like how you're feeling with it day to day or what you do physically with it but you haven't been looking at it um, and you haven't been looking at it in its entirety and looking at it in the context of others frankly Mm. there's this way of you know, there are a lot of group photos. It was a group retreat. <laughs> and so there are a lot of photos with me, of me with women of varying body types, mm-hmm. right? And in relationship to the bodies of others, there's suddenly a judgment that isn't there when it's just the singular, mm-hmm. right? Because it's comparative. Yeah. There is something about, there's something about the image, there's something about the image in the field of others that is different than the direct experience. You know, in the same time that I'm talking about, I fell in love, I developed a relationship, I was engaged in my body in intimacy Mm. in a way that I hadn't been for a while before that, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't a moment of, not being embodied, Mm -hmm. it was more a moment of not having a relationship between that embodiment and its representations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that and, and how freeing in some ways to have a period of time where you're not, where, where you are embodied and you're experiencing your body and you're not thinking always about how you compare and how you relate and what society thinks of you or what you necessarily think of you in an image form. Mm -hmm. And yet the importance of returning back to like, this is also part of who I am and this is how I experience the world. That shouldn't just be absent from everything. Yeah, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. I'd love to say, um, oh, I'm just at peace with the new expanded version of me, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and I am, because there have been so many kinds of expansion, right? Not just a physical material expansion. I've done a lot of spiritual work in this period. I really see and understand things at a whole new level. And yet, while I have a peace with what is in the moment, mm. I don't sit in the place where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's okay. We'll just leave it like that. Mm. Right? Now I'm endeavoring and deciding and making choices and, you know, and I'm cautious to look at that and make sure that there's always an underlay of love, Mm. right? That there's not a Mm self-annihilation that's part of the correction, Mm. right? Even to call it a correction (laughs) is challenging, but I think, I think it would be dishonest from where I sit right now to not call it a correction. Mm. Right. And I'm like, oops, a thing happened while I was looking away. 
Okay. I can get on top of that. But I have, you know, I realize I've, I've talked a lot about context, that so much of it is that I've let, that I've let my body exist in so many different contexts. And not a lot of people experience so many contexts, I think, mm. as I have. I love habits. I love <laughs> micro flows. But every context mm, sort of supports and genders a different set of habits, right? That time I lived by the lake and walked every day. That time I lived in New York City and walked six miles a day just doing functional things, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, that time I lived with other dancers and we danced all the time spontaneously, right? Mm. I have a group of girlfriends from college and we have recently started having a monthly, like a monthly Zoom call. And one of my girlfriends literally has the same job that she had when we were in undergrad. She stayed at her work-study job and basically became the director Mm. (laughs) of the whole thing. So she's had the same context the same professional context i won't say how for how many years but since we were sophomores in college we haven't been sophomores in college for a long time and you know i think about and she probably bought her house 20 plus years ago right and so i think about what it is to have habits in such a durable context Mm. right they could be good habits they could be bad habits but you know them within a field. And I've led a life where I'm just constantly recreating myself in relationship to context, my habits in relationship to context. Could you, back there, you use the word microflow, and that is a mm-hmm. word I am not familiar with. Oh, well, I like to make up words. Don't even worry. What uh, do you mean by it then? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, when I think about that, what what I recently heard somebody talk about in sort of the positive psychology world talk about it as habit stacking, Hmm. right? So like when you walk the dog, you go on a two-mile walk instead of like an (laughs) in-yard walk, right? Like just that way that you put – the things that you want to be doing into the flow of the way you live in a particular context, really, right? So like I wake up and I have a hot lemon water and then I meditate and like how do those things go together? Mm -hmm. But what I find is most of them are not portable Mm -hmm. for me, Mm -hmm. right? Like what I want to do first thing in the morning when I, what I wanted to do first thing in the morning when I was living on the coast, all right on the water in the Pacific Northwest is different than what I want to do when I wake up on a boat or what I want to do when I wake up in Florida or what I want to do when I wake up at a motel in the middle of the country, right? Mm. Like, 
it's hmm, those ways of relating to my body change with the environment that I'm in. Yeah, I mean, because we are we are not just mental beings, we are physical beings. And so when the physical space changes, we change and our habits change. And not just the physical space, but also the people that are around or not around. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, totally. Yeah, I, I'm someone who really loves my routines. Um, I think because I grew up moving around so much and there was just so much chaos in my life. Um, I think my the language my therapist used was um, I use my routines to hold myself together, mm-hmm. these external things, and they're helpful to me and I find them comforting. Um, but I also do enjoy, you know, like going to the queer Christian conference that I went to a couple of weeks ago or mm-hmm. going to a writer's retreat like I did with you. And there's an intensity of that experience where you, you're only able to learn some new things or feel new things. I think when you do that, but then it also disrupts like all of this routine and I come back and I'm a mess. And so, yeah. Yeah. When you said that, it just, it reminded me of that experience. Yeah. And my experience has been less one of go and return Mm. Then one of go, and then the next, and then the next, Mm -hmm. right? So there isn't the same level of like, oh, when I get back to ground zero, I'll reset, Mm -hmm. right? It's just like, oh, on to the next. Here's a set of habits, on to the next, you know? Mm -hmm. When I lived in Rome, I used to love to have like a gelato in the midday because it's when all the nuns were out having their gelatos and it was just this funny kind of like convergence of the butterflies you know it was really fun to just be in the that in like that fluttery space that they created in with their midday gelatos Mm. yeah i lived very near the vatican right on the other side of the vatican wall um so a lot of nuns Yeah, you know, what just came to mind is I've traveled a lot. My my parents were missionaries, and my experience was, you know, I I did live in the Philippines for a year, but other than that, I traveled to places where I could blend in if I tried or if I wanted to, which is mostly what I did. What is it like for you as a black woman to travel? That's a complex question. And I will say it is changing, right? Like the face of who is considered a legitimate traveler Mm. is changing. When I first started traveling, I did my junior year abroad in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam. It was almost unheard of for Black American women to be doing study abroad and to be traveling Mm. in that way. And it was very complicated. 
to say the least. I was in a university that had just been gender integrated a couple of years before and was very much a part of um, a post-colonial regime, a post-colonial mentality. Mm. And so there was still a way that white women were predominantly white, right? Even though a lot of what was happening was a gender divide, right? They just gender integrated the university. Their restrictions only applied to brown-skinned women because, you know, this is a, this is a national university. It's primarily black Africans nearly exclusively. Hmm. And in the colonial situation, there is no ability for the black body to regulate the white body. Hmm. So no, there's no level of power that black men are going to hold that allows them to regulate the movement and communications of a white woman. Hmm. It just doesn't work that way. And so the white American women who came were basically treated like white men, right? Or like white mm. men adjacent. And the black men who came, there was only one, I think, maybe two, were treated as comrades. And for me, they just couldn't figure out where to place me, right? Mm. Like, do we treat her like the other black women? Because they were very constrained. Even though they were now allowed in the university, they weren't allowed to speak in class, right? And this mm. is not an official mandate. This is the culture of the space, which was very mm, enforced, right? Can I ask you a clarifying question? Yeah, there are so many. <laughs> so I, I think I, I got jumbled up a little bit in here. So this was this was a, a women's only No. No. It was that only men had access to public education. Oh, okay, sorry. So it was Until- a men's only in a just yeah. like our institutions, right? Like Harvard before they merged with Radcliffe. Right. Right is an all-boys school. My understanding, all the Ivy League was all all men's education. Okay. Right? They just are coming to that integration much later. Okay. And so women are allowed to be a physical presence there, but not to speak in class. Um, and this was a, a white, for white men. Or was this no, black no, no. Men? This is this is a historical black university. black university. Okay. No, it's in Tanzania. The people. Oh, sorry. Are black. There was just so much uh, context there that I was like, okay, what, what, like, which totally. person is being into? So, okay, this was a. Totally. a it's a national university. national university. All right. Primarily black Africans, with few exceptions. Okay. Yeah, and exclusively men until the integration that happened a little bit before I got there. And so this is a story that I often find myself talking about because it was really constitutive for me as a traveler. I was 18 when I went. I went for a year. And, you know, that I am still a traveler 
is a testament to a choice. Because what I experienced in that year was either going to make me stay at home forever Mm. or make me essentially immune to anything that could happen because everything had already happened, really. So the way that they enforced these um, kind of implicit restrictions was through gang rape and slander. Mm. So for the minority women as in a minority of women were there, there was still only one dormitory that was accessible for women. Mm. And so they might've made up 10% of the population, maybe less. Um, and they all knew the rules. And so mm. for anybody that didn't follow those rules, they were sanctioned, right? With this experience of gang rape and then public information, information being made public that basically shames them in the face of their families. Mm. So they can't stay at the university and they can't go home. Hmm. Right. Because they've been, they've been shamed Mm. to their families and then therefore have brought shame onto their families. Mm. And this was a, I had something like 13 roommates while I was mm. there because all of the women feared for their safety and proximity to me. So I was like, not only am I going to talk in class, but we're going to talk about feminism. We might even talk about black feminism. I brought a book with me. Ooh. Want to hear about oh, it? Oh boy. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. It was so intense that at some point I was at some point in that year, I was made some offers by our seated State Department officials, just like the the local mm. officials of security, of other housing, because the risk was just pretty clear. Mm. Yeah. So when you said that you had 13 housemates, do you, do you mean that they kept switching? Yeah. Because of just roommates in a dorm. Because of your wildness and because yeah, because they feared for their own safety mm. and their ability to stay in school. So being being proximate to me was not a safe choice. Yeah. And it was confusing. Like we don't really understand. It was it was confusing on a basic physical level for people. We have such a breadth of what we consider black mm-hmm. in America, in the Americas, that we don't really think about how that might play out in parts of the world that haven't had as much genetic mixing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So in the context of the U.S., I'm just black, really, obviously. Mm-hmm. In the context of Tanzania, I'm either Swahili, um, a mixed coastal people mm-hmm. or I'm half caste. Mm. Right? Some combination of African and European. And, you know, in point of fact, that's what I am. That's what most people in the Americas are. Mm. Right? Like most people who are identified as black are some sort of mix of African, European, Native American. Mm. But that's not our language. That's not the way we talk about it. So I wasn't prepared to have the school kids running after me, like half cast, half cast, 
Yeah, I was about to say that does not sound like a neutral or positive term. It wasn't. But I think what's more interesting is how contextual it was, Hmm. how much I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. How much the frame of reference that I had as a Black American couldn't prepare me for, couldn't, didn't prepare me for what it was to be visually recognized as being part European Mm -hmm. in a different context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. It's like, oh, this is our unspoken secret. We live with the one drop rule. Come over here. Let me tell you about (laughs) it. No, no, I'm black like you. You don't understand. (laughs) Yeah. This is very different, but I, I have a friend who is I believe a quarter Japanese. Mm -hmm. And so in America, would be seen as as Asian and then in Japan where she taught for a few years definitely not viewed as Japanese you know definitely viewed as American mm-hmm. and um pretty pretty much on the on the white side now that was different in that she did not have derogatory and dangerous ex- like experiences like it might have been derogatory but like in a much milder sense, right? Um, people did not run after her. <laughs> I mean, let me be clear. They were little children. They were not menacing. Okay. They were just like finding something to talk about. Like, there she is. We've heard about her. Mm-hmm. The half cast. I would go downtown and, you know, I just remember like walking downtown Dar es Salaam and people would look at me and they'd be really confused about like, what what is it right it's not like anything we've ever seen Mm. you know it's and that's some of like how i'm dressed how i'm talking who i'm with right like that's not just skin but that's part of it and some of them over time asked me and so you know there would just be people who were like vendors people who are regularly there in the downtown space Mm -hmm. you know like kind of lining the sidewalks and so some of them had asked me at some point or asked other people like other students from our group. And so they'd figured out some of them had figured it out and it was like spreading like a rumor, like Mm. what is the thing? And so I would walk downtown and you could just hear like this, like kind of whisper in my leg, ah, the black American, black American, black American, black American. It would like follow me down the street. Mm. Like, Oh, that's what it is. Mm. But then also confusion, right? Like at that time, way pre-internet, they didn't have a frame of reference for an American who wasn't white Mm -hmm. beyond, say, Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson. Yeah. And those are celebrities. Nobody really relates to them as like being from place. Yeah. Right? They're just kind of celestial figures. That's amazing. But there are no other Black people in America who are not in the Jackson family <laughs> or in the Jordan right. family. Yeah, I'm thinking I have met or I have met or heard of two Black missionaries in my experience, um, to, to one in Russia and one in Ukraine. Um, both were, were Black women. Um, and one of them 
was married to a, a white man and then had two sons. And I think there's multiple reasons for why that's true. I think some of it has to do with um, certain ideas about missionary work in black church communities. I think it's different from a lot of white church communities, but it's also, it's difficult to travel and Russia and Ukraine are racist (laughs) to say it lightly. Um, But I, I remember that those are the only times very, very infrequently does that happen. And there is a whole missionary infrastructure inside the Black American church community, mm. right? I actually grew up in what was called a missionary Baptist church. Mm. Okay. Um, but the emphasis tends to be to other regions, right? So there are a lot of missions to, say, West Africa or the Caribbean. Mm. I mean, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Mm. And I've always, I've always encountered those. This is something I know virtually nothing about, but I've always encountered those more as mission trips than as like um, long term, long term missionary placements. Right. Right. So while I lived in East Africa, I lived with a Lutheran missionary family in Kenya for a while. My partner at the time was in a really bad bus accident, and we ended up going to Kenya from Tanzania for better medical care. And while he was in hospital and for probably a month or so, as he was convalescing, he lived with this family in Mm. the suburbs of Nairobi. Mm. Talking about context, you know, you've talked about, you know, what it's been like to be a black woman in black cultures or like countries that are primarily black what has it meant to have a black female body in america i think the place where i'll start with that is i really expected taking this black female body out of america to africa to be a relief Mm. to be a reprieve to be a place where I fit. I had no expectation of it being the place where I fit least mm-hmm. in my experience to date. Right. And that was a long time ago now. I mean, I'm very much past all of those experiences. They now are interesting stories of reflection and not much more. And since then, I've worked in and out of the continent for my entire career in different ways. And, you know, on, on others as well. So I have an experience of this body all over the world. And I also have an experience of this body across time. Right. I'd always said I wouldn't come back to Florida, which is where mm-hmm. I grew up. Um, because the racism that I experienced here while growing up was so intense and so limiting. Mm-hmm. But I thought I'd never be someplace again that was that that limiting because of just who I was when I showed up. And that's where I am now. And I realize that all places change with time. Time is always a part of context. Mm. right? And so some of the experiences that I had as a young person here are not the experiences that I have as a middle-aged woman here. Mm. And that's not 
just about me getting older. That's about the discourse of, of race changing. That's about what's perceived as acceptable behavior changing. That's, that's about a lot of things, mm. right? That doesn't mean that we all know that doesn't mean that all racism goes away, but it, I think one of the things that I know about my body or that I've appreciated about my body is the ability to be a kind of a living litmus test of discourse, of ideology. Mm. I can tell you pretty quickly on landing in a place what people believe. Hmm. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Do they believe in equality? Do they believe in humanity? Do they believe in the capacity of all? Has that belief translated into um, the free movement of attraction? Mm. Right. I can go to a place where people will treat me kindly, but no one will engage me in the framework of attraction or intimacy. Mm. Right. So there's a like equal but different, mm. right? I can go to places where I feel like the difference and distance and I can go to places that are um, the kind of exoticizing collecting, mm. right? Like, oh, we want more of you. It's so mm. rare, right? And that's a kind of intimacy and attraction, but it speaks to an underneath layer that still is underlining difference. Mm. Okay. Where are the spaces where there is the free flow of a sense of uh, equality and attraction and a just pervasive discourse of humanity? Mm. Right. Those are rare, but I can thin slice that for you in about three minutes. Mm. Wow. I mean, I, I think that makes sense. Anyone who is othered in, you know, the multiple ways that that can happen will have um, their finger on that pulse. Whereas someone who belongs to a system, it's like a fish in water, right? So... You know, if if I'm in a space, you know, I might not always be right, but I often do have a sense of, is this a safe place for me to be female-bodied, queer, trans, um, mm -hmm. whatever it might be? And that's something that, that my spidey sense is going to sense, um, and someone who is male-bodied, straight, cis, is probably not going to pick up on. It's a, they, it has to be a learned sense there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Spidey sense is exactly, exactly right, right? And then how do you educate that? And so I think one thing happens when you live only in a context like the, the southern U.S. has been for some time, right? When you live only in a context that mm, doesn't see equality and doesn't hold a feel of, attra of attraction, mm. right? That spidey sense begins to atrophy into a kind of permanent polarity, 
right? Because it's just like, oh, all people like this will treat me in this mm. way. That's not safe. The contextual repetition, mm. right? Like it kind of solidifies. Yeah, I find your use of the word attraction interesting because, of course, when, when I generally think of that word, I think of romantic, physical, sexual attraction. But that seems to be different from what you are meaning when you're using that word. It's definitely part of what mm-hmm. I mean, right? Like, there's the level of tolerance. There's the level of inclusion, mm-hmm. right? I think above both of those is the level of attraction, mm-hmm. depending on where it comes from, mm-hmm. right? Like, okay, I can tolerate your difference. Okay, you can be included here. But no, I'm just genuinely compelled and attracted to you as a human, mm-hmm. and there are no bounds in the way we might relate to each other. That's something that's something different. Yeah. N- now I'm thinking of the, the opposite word, which would be repulsion, right, or, or disgust. And oh, maybe a year ago, I read a book by Richard Beck called Unclean and the idea of like, the disgust response um, and how it leads to exclusion of other. And so, yeah, when you're talking about attraction, there is also how much repulsion is there? Like if that's present. Right. And I chose to start at tolerance, Mm. right. And to go up from that scale because most of our conversations end in inclusion. When we look at a lot of the the contemporary parlance, right? It's all diversity and inclusion. Mm. And attraction is another level. And when you're excluded from the field of attraction, when you're excluded from the field of desire, that's still an exclusion that is very impactful on the human Mm. soul, right? It's not just to be in the room, but to be in the room with warmth, to be in the room with, the opportunity to the limitless opportunity to connect anywhere. Mm. Right. And that's not saying that everyone in the world is going to be attracted to you, but it's a different feeling when you know you're in a space where attraction won't be part of it. Mm. Right. So below the scale that I started with is exclusion. And Mm. then I think below that is repulsion. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, when I was at my my conference, one of the sessions that I went to was showing this sort of spectrum of someone's feelings to- about like queer folk mm-hmm. and hate to like, I think advocacy mm-hmm. and all these little steps in between of like hate, dislike, discomfort, tolerance. And then somewhere along the line is acceptance and celebration or advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can tell, I really remember the negative ones, specifically discomfort. Mm-hmm. And and the discomfort is above, you know, dislike and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, in a similar way, I'd go to the top of that scale and say that I think attraction is also above advocacy. Mm. Right? Like, because you can advocate for someone that you wouldn't bring into your intimate space. 
And I mean, that's a, that's a point of, of interest, a point of curiosity to me, mm. right? You can champion someone and still hold them as other in a lot of ways. Um, I could fight for rights of people of color, but if someone marries my kid and they're black or they're Latino or whatever, that is a whole different ballgame. And I would say that is a different ballgame than who you, who you yourself would marry. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because there's mm, tradition and protection and elements that come into what's mm. happening with your kids that are different than mm. the elements of what's happening in your field of desire. Mm. So one of the things that you forget is that Desire is one of our primary fields of conditioning. Hmm. Very few of us have desires that are not educated. Right. Right. And so that's the place, that's sort of the last frontier of, oh, it's just natural, right? These are just the people, the kinds of people that I'm attracted to, and I'm not attracted to those people. Right. But there's so much conditioning in our desire. Yeah. That just immediately brings to mind for me the movie South Pacific um, and the song You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, which um, was uh, really got, I believe, the, the original musical in a, into a lot of trouble mm. because it was talking about how racism is taught. You are educated into it. It's not something that's just, quote unquote, natural, which is the way that it used to and, and in some spaces is still thought of as this is, of course, this is innate. And so then there's the place where you go from who do we include, right? Who do mm. we allow in the room is a different place than who do we allow in our hearts? Who do we allow in the field of our desire? Mm. Right. Because that's sort of a f one of the last frontiers where people can still use that naturalized language. Hmm. Right? Oh no, that's just that's just me. That's just who I'm attracted to. Mm -hmm. So we started the conversation, and I was talking more about the size of my body than the racial markers of my body. Mm -hmm. But those things are deeply related. Mm. Right? As a young woman, one way of mitigating against the alienating effect of being in a brown body was to make sure that I wasn't also in a fat body. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of these factors I can control, one I cannot. Mm. Right. The one I can control keeps me more in the field of polite society in the, the biggest sense, right? Acceptable. Acceptable and with a prayer, maybe still in the field of attraction, mm -hmm. right? Because this thing I can't change is already so many demerits against me. The things I can change, I've got a hyper-control, to be able to play in the arena, right? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's certainly not how I approach it now. But I'm quite aware that because I was in largely white environments as a very highly educated black woman, none of my peers looked like me. And so if I didn't want to have a total schism between my personal life and my professional life, it meant finding ways to be more palatable, attractive inside the rooms that I was in, mm-hmm. inside the circles where I was. Mm. I've just, I've been thinking about um, being attractive a lot in the last couple of weeks and specifically for me and it's in a pretty different realm but I was realizing oh I kind of knew how to be attractive as a woman Mm -hmm. Um, I had the parts (laughs) and I knew how to present those in a way that I was um acceptable or attractive but as a man I don't really know how to be attractive or am I attractive as a man and you know realizing oh well what if I'm what if I'm just a fat man what if I'm a fat trans man and you know already this difficulty of being trans and not being able to meet certain expectations and being outside of what people think of as okay. Um, If you load up on top of that, people's um, repulsion towards fat people, you know, and, and just the amount of shame that I feel about that, I didn't expect that to be so painful. Mm. And yeah, I'm like, oh, well, if I want to pass, if I want to work, I need to have a certain body that looks a certain way. I can't just be a normal body or I I certainly can't be, actually, I'm just realizing how I'm like norming, like what certain types of bodies look like. Um, An average sized body, I guess, as opposed to a bigger or you know, we lose the language of fat. Um, so that, that really interests me. And I feel, I think moved quite a bit when you talk about that. Yeah. Hmm. I'm really, well, first, thank you for sharing that perspective. Hmm. I think, mm, between these two experiences and even between our generations, there's been a lot of work done on body positivity, right? A lot, um, a lot of people working in this space diligently to try to change those senses of limitation and exclusion. And here's the reality in two people's experience of encountering the like, oh no, I cannot go further into otherness than I already am. I've maxed out the scale. I'm Mm. black and female. I cannot also be fat. Right. 
I'm queer and trans. I cannot also be fat. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's real conversation. Right? Like, wh- how do you relate to your body? And it, it's a really big part of the questions that I mindfully ask myself in this moment mm. to make sure that, that the changes that I'm making are not coming from that that space, mm. right? Which ultimately is just self-loathing. Mm-hmm. You know, that they are in my own greater interests of the body that I want, of the relationship that I want to exercise and vitality and life. Mm. But it's not a foregone conclusion. It's not a foregone conclusion moment to moment that it comes from there mm. and not from a darker, more self-corrective place. Mm-hmm. That's why the question has to stay present. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know? And I think when we end up in these, on these personal or spiritual development journeys, it can be really tempting to be like, oh, I'm past that. Mm. You know, I'm more evolved, more enlightened, more attuned than that. And I think that's why we have to have very real conversations from where we are and be like, okay, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. That, that history is deep and the social reinforcement is strong. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because there's something I want to make sure that we we touch on and, and get into. Um, so earlier I, I mentioned that, you know, I have a um, focus on suffering mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And, you know, something that I've noticed with this project and perhaps it's because I come, I come from this place of, of thinking about suffering is when I ask people about how they relate to their bodies uh, immediately, except for one, maybe more than one time, but rarely, uh, the immediate response is of pain and struggle, um, which, you know, I, I, I think is, is great and is very important, but sometimes we miss on the, the ways that we love our body or the ways that we love, like feel embodied or, or present with ourselves. Um, and so I was wondering if you, you could talk on that, especially as I know that you do work in pleasure. Um, yeah, I do. And it's, um, you know, none of these things live in a vacuum. All of them are connected. And I think my experience of prioritizing and attuning toward pleasure, right? Not just um, in contrast to suffering, but as its own orientation. Where mm. is the pleasure? How do I lean into that? How do I lean into my own turn on, into my own aliveness? moment Mm. to moment um, 
has made my lived experience something so much more delightful than when my primary experience was of the kind of intellectual structure of its suffering. Mm. When I say intellectual structure, I don't mean it's not part of the lived experience, right? Mm. But like when I tell the story of walking down the street in Dar es Salaam, you know, and hearing the whiskey birds of like, oh, black American, black American, right? I'm not also in the in that story, in that naming, in that recounting. I'm not also in the quality of the sun in that place, hmm. the feeling of the fabric of that particular feeling of like the long skirt. It's a Muslim country. Hmm. And so there was like this wish, this way of relating to fabric and material with my body that hadn't been part mm. of my urban outfitters clad teenage experience, you know, <laughs> early college experience up until then. Right. And so pleasure doesn't change the context, but it reorients focus inside of content context, not to make me ignore things like structural inequity or polarization or racism or homophobia or any of those things, right? But just that I can have a direct experience of my body in the world that is different than all of that. And that's mostly where I live, right? It's part of why the photographs are so startling because the Mm -hmm. photographs remind me of the... Mm -hmm of kind of the secondary nature of things. Because Mm. in the primary nature of things, I am delighted to be looking out the door at a 75 degree day Mm. in Florida and noticing the quality of the light changing and noticing the the feeling of kind of neutral temperature on my skin. Mm. My skin is relaxed. It's not responding. It's not sweating. It doesn't have chill bumps. It is being bitten by some small creatures who might be mosquitoes. <laughs> That's a thing, right? But in the orientation to pleasure, even those just pull my attention to the sensation rather mm-hmm. than um, making them a problem or an irritation or a thing that has to be solved. It's like, oh, what are these little pricks of heat? that are now beginning to spread on my body. Mm. You know, that anthology came out a few years ago, Pleasure Activism. And I think when it came out, a lot of people didn't quite get it. My zone isn't something that I would call activism, but I do believe that the reorientation to pleasure, to this very unique experience of being depending on how you understand it, how I understand it, is being an embodied soul in this lifetime, right? It's a really unique game. It's a really unique assignment. When we drop into the marvel that is embodiment, I find it very difficult to not feel more connected to other beings having that experience. Could you say that last sentence again? I, I think I realized that my, my mind was wandering mm. and I, I want to make sure that I, I catch it. 
I think the point there was just when you tune into, when you lean towards pleasure, when you turn mm-hmm. towards pleasure, you are fundamentally having a direct experience of what it is to be a soul in a body, mm. right? what it is to be in a body. And that's an experience that everybody around you is also having. Mm. So there is a point of connection, a possibility of connection. Um, oh, a kind of precondition of connection Mm. from that orientation, right? We're Mm. all having that experience. Mm. Whether you are doing it in a wheelchair or you're doing it in an 85-year-old body or you're doing it in a 12-year-old body, we're all doing it. Mm. A black body, a queer body, a fat body, a slim body, None of those things matter because we are all having an embodied experience right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think part of me struggles with this because I am I think so used to the ideas of dissociation and pain and Um, and suffering, you know, um, that hearing about being embodied. And I think not only just being embodied, but the fact that we're all doing that, that this is, um, to use language from before, this is an inclusive thing for some reason right now is mind boggling to me, right? That this is something that we all share and, we're having different experiences of it and some of us have more um, difficulty with it. And some people seem to be able to be more present and accepting of that experience, which doesn't always mean that they're having pleasure, right. Or, or positive experience, but um, yeah. One thing that most people don't realize is that pleasure actually begins with neutrality. Mm. It begins when you can observe things just as they are. Mm. So if I can observe these new bug bites as heat without the mental story that it's a bug bite therefore an intrusion therefore a problem etc etc if i can just be present with the heat okay well if somebody invited me into candle play i'd probably be like sure i'll try that i'm not averse to an experience of heat Hmm. right i've just already judged this heat I have a narrative, I have a story about this not being my preferred heat, not an acceptable heat, not an allowable heat, and and incursion and interruption. But if I go back to neutrality, it's just heat. It's just an experience I'm having in my body. Hmm. Yeah, for me, I I noticed the word that was coming to me was uh, invasion or attack. Um, the, The way of experiencing the world as an invading, attacking presence and mm-hmm. um, 
So anything that comes in is, or is viewed as coming in, you know, invading is viewed as suspect, mm-hmm. right? And that we oftentimes do pay quite a lot of attention to what is painful or uncomfortable, which I'm also realizing means that we're looking at those things as uh, wrong or that these things shouldn't ever exist. The, the norm is that is, is either nothing or, or positive, mm-hmm. right? And the truth is nothing is ever in the way of your pleasure. Hmm. Because everything that's happening is just an experience in the body. Hmm. So, now this I find very confusing. As someone who experiences chronic pain, Mm -hmm. um, and specifically, as I said before, like um, sexual or pelvic floor pain, Mm -hmm. how is that pain not in the way of my pleasure? Because it's distracting as fuck. (laughs) okay that's exactly how you think it's in the way because it's distracting you from something else that would be better right Mm. but if you can just drop into the observation of it as a set of sensations a lot of what we find pleasurable are sets of sensations Mm. like okay i this will be some of the places where we might challenge each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I really, one of the places that I really have historically appreciated um, in the field of pleasure and sensuality is impact play, right? Uh, that could be like flogging. That could mm. be just an aggressive touch, right? Like a strong touch. And so... I can find a lot of pleasure in somebody grabbing me by the back of my neck, Mm -hmm. right? What does it feel like? It feels constricting. It feels tight. It feels like pressure inward. Okay, I've definitely had some back pain that has had all of those same qualities. (laughs) But I decided that that one was bad, right? I decided beforehand. Oh, that's not coming from a context. We just keep coming back to context, right? That's not coming from a context that I've invited. That's not coming from a context that I perceive as positive. So therefore, this thing that's Mm -hmm. happening is in the way of my pleasure, even though the pleasure that I might invite might have all of the same qualities or attributes, right? Yes, there is a measure of control. I can tell the person grabbing my neck to stop, right? But I can also be in relationship with those sensations, right? In a way that allows me to bring my attention to them, bring my attention away from them, put my attention on some other part of my body, heighten the sensation somewhere else and see if it competes, right? Like when I can start with neutrality, I can play with the experience that I'm actually having. But most of the time what happens first is we grip and we resist and then pleasure is not possible in that context. Hmm. So I found it interesting to use the word, the phrase impact play. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely a world that I have 
um, explored some or is perhaps maybe more of where my my bent is Mm -hmm. right but it is so different when you the view of like control or that you purposely put yourself into this space as opposed to um, what I feel is being put upon me or is invading me. And yeah, I, I understand part of that, but the, the part that is difficult is that um, how do you engage, how you engage with something that you can't control mm-hmm. necessarily. Right. When you were talking about that and the idea and that is a question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. When I'm engaging with the wind and finding delight, that's also something I can't control. I can take myself to a different environment. I can put on clothes, but I ultimately can't control the wind. Right. I can put myself into a disposition in relationship to it that allows me to find delight in it. And I'm not saying like all pain is going to be delightful, right? (laughs) Like it's, it's not, it's not that it's just, that is some of the work of pleasure is leaning into just what is Mm. in the moment Mm -hmm. without feeling that violation, Mm. right? That, that, bent toward um suffering here it is what's in it for me what is what is the education here and that's a higher level question than just what are the sensations that are actually present what am i experiencing in my body Mm -hmm. you've already talked about some of this but um I always like to touch on this with people of what are the ways that you feel um, where you feel really embodied. And I I often bend bend this towards a a positive way, Um, but I'm just going to keep it neutral as uh, that's been coming up in conversation. You know, I think that this question is, is a question for every moment. Mm. Not a question for special moments, right? So right now my embodiment is I'm sitting on the safu on the floor. I made this choice because it is less straining on my body than sitting on a stool in my kitchen where I often take calls. Mm. When I am curious about my embodiment, then I just come back to feeling my butt on the safu, my legs on the floor the warmth in different spots on my body, Mm. right? There, the phrase that comes to me is, when I am living well, this is the practice. Mm. Not just in joyful moments where I'm getting together with friends to dance or like being with a new lover or doing something, you know, having a massage or doing something particularly delightful. It's available in in every moment that is. Mm. All I am doing all the time, what I am doing, the the foundation of what I'm doing is being embodied. 
And then, uh, yeah, at the end, I just always ask people if they have any last things that they want to say before we close. Well, first I'll just say it was unexpected. There are some of these stories that we talked about today that I shared today that are definitely part of the archive of my experience, but they're not on the top. Mm -hmm. Right. So when I shuffle the deck, they don't come up that often these days. Mm. And so that's interesting. It's interesting to see the constellation of points that have really taught me about this body that I inhabit and the relationship between its perception and representation and my lived experience of mm. it. I think that's an interesting way to come back to pleasure because pleasure is always in my lived experience of it. Mm. And where I struggle most historically and now is in the representation and the perception, mm. not in the lived experience of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad that, that some parts of this were unexpected. Um, I, I like to, I like to do that to people, <laughs> um, but also, you know, as I I was looking last night and saying, oh, you know, um, you've been interviewed a few times, uh, and being like, okay, well, let's make sure that we're not just going over the same ground that that perhaps other people have been been going on. So, I'm I'm pleased to hear that. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for joining me. I, I feel very honored. And this has been thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable and, and also um, expanding of, of how I think and feel about things. Uh, so I appreciate that. Thank you for the invitation. No, thank you, Max. Is this your dog? She's very sweet. This is my neighbor's dog, who I am technically allergic to, so is oh. not allowed in my cottage. My little dog is hypoallergenic. He's looking at me like, my mama left, and I need some help, lady. <laughs> <laughs>